Who says the Bible has to be boring? On the contrary, the Bible is the most thrilling book in the world. It's the only book with an invitation to join the very narrative you are reading. My goal is to be like your time-traveling tour guide, taking you into an exploration of scripture in search of precious treasure. Timeless, life-giving truths that inform us of who God is, who we are, and how the story of everything really is His story. I invite you to join me as we learn to read the story, trust the story, and live the story, because there's no greater adventure than knowing the God of the Bible. I am Brayden Brookshire, and this is Adventures in Theology. I want us to walk through the parable that's known as the Good Samaritan, but before we even walk through it, I, I think there's something we have to call out that, you know, we've lost sort of the sting of why it's even called this. Like, even when people do something kind, they'll say, oh, that person just being a good Samaritan. Whereas in the ancient Jewish context, when Jesus said this and who he said it to, that would be like saying something that sounded like an oxymoron. Let, let's put it into today's world and context. And I'm going to attack both ends of the political spectrum for a second. So I'm going to end up affirming and offending both. <laughs> Here's what I'm saying. It, let's say we call renamed this parable in a way that would uh, really bring back the sting. It'd be like calling it this, calling it the parable of the good, woke, liberal leftist. Or on the other side, the parable of the good MAGA Trump supporter. Hopefully you're catching the irony of what I'm trying to say here. It's, it's like saying, hey, the good insert person who you think cannot be just is... Uh, class like paradigmatically ruled out of being considered good because of these other things and now in this case it was it, there was a lot of tension between the samaritans and the jews and we'll talk a little bit about that in just a few minutes what a great passage hopefully for those of you who uh maybe are have the lullaby effect you've heard this parable so many times you're so familiar with it just tune in you know even when we're reading the passage don't tune out of that part there's, there's something fresh here, hopefully. So let's read. Let's just start in verse 25, Luke 10, verse 25. And we'll keep going to and making some comments along the way. So Luke 10, 25 says this. Then an expert in the law stood up to test him, that is Jesus, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now stop there for a second. Uh, expert in the law, some, some translations say a lawyer. That's fine either way. This is someone who was, uh, had a profession and an expertise in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And notice his question. I mean, well, first of all, he's trying to trap Jesus, stood up to test him. Some translations say trap him. Trap is actually really good that captures. It's not just testing him. He's trying to get him... He's egging on this conversation toward a certain end. Now, we don't exactly know the end he's trying to get it to, but Jesus is going to pick up on that in a minute. But first, notice the question he asks. So, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why is that question nonsensical? Think about that for a second. Why is, does that question itself faulty and not even make sense on its own? Let's see it again. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Maybe you figured it out. Because you don't inherit something by doing something. You inherit something by being someone. 
So what would be a better way of framing this question if he genuinely wanted to know, which I'm not sure he did, but if he did, you would say something like, who inherits eternal life? And that'd be a more fitting question, and that's where we would typically turn to something like the Beatitudes, the Macrosms, when we see the answer like the poor in spirit, and, uh, you know, and so on. But So this is one of those many times in the Bible where someone starts with a faulty question that cannot simply be answered without first being redirected. But Jesus entertains the question anyway. But notice how the narrative presents the expert in the law as having an original question, but then Jesus helps him reframe it to find a new one. So let's keep reading. Let's read verses 26 through 29, and we'll have more to say here. So follow along, verse 26 through 29. It says, Jesus responding to him after he asks his question says, What is written in the law? Jesus asked him. How do you read it? Basically, how do you interpret it? And I love this. Let me actually just pause here because, uh, you know, here next guy comes with a question, and I think Jesus picks up on the fact that this guy is, you know, up to something. So he's like, okay, you know what? It sounds like you have a question that you know the answer to already. How, how would you answer your own question? Kind of, I like that. I like that response. What do you think the answer is? Verse 27, the, the lawyer, the expert in the law answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, he told him. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Let's stop there for a second. This man's answer is a scriptural sandwich of Deuteronomy 6.5 from the Shema in Leviticus 19.18. Loving God and loving your neighbor. Now, we know what Jesus meant by loving your neighbor as yourself. It's the same answer Jesus gives when he's asked the greatest the commandment, to love God and love your neighbor. And I would even say perhaps this man heard Jesus' teaching before and imitated the answer to appease him. This is a plausible explanation because this is clearly not this guy's first, well, hearing of Jesus. He had been following him enough to want to go and trap him. So he'd have to have done some homework. So he probably answered Jesus the very way he knew Jesus would want to be answered on that question, perhaps. And then Jesus responds to this man that he answered correctly. The Greek word here is orthos. It's where we get the English word orthodoxy. Basically, if this was a test, the man knew the answer in his head. But as we will see, his heart would fail the same test. There's a great assumption underneath his question when he inquires of Jesus, who is my neighbor in verse 29? Essentially, think about it this way. He's asking this, who am I required to love in accordance with the Torah's covenantal instruction? Maybe that's kind of some lofty terms I added there, but basically he wants to put confines in who he's supposed to love. If, if we know we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourself, well, who is my neighbor? I mean, to what extent and to what kind of am I supposed to love someone? And let me just ask you this first. Who do you, who do you think is a neighbor? Like, who is your neighbor? You know, in terms of like when Jesus says to love your neighbor as yourself, who, who is your neighbor? It's a good question. We will answer that. <laughs> now let's talk a little bit more about this first. So this expert in the Torah, this, this lawyer, probably had adopted a modified form of Leviticus 19.18. You see, rabbis built on scriptural passages to explain them. And a famous saying circulating in the days of Jesus would have been this, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, that surely makes love much easier, doesn't it? Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Who couldn't do that? But this was never the, as the Old Testament intended. 
You see, when Jesus corrects the religious leaders of the day regarding the Old Testament, it's not because Jesus has a problem with the Old Testament. Technically, he authored it because he's Yahweh incarnate. Instead, he has a problem with how they have misconstrued and misapplied it. You see, the Pharisees and uh, many of the religious leaders of the day, they, they made the instruction of the Torah into a burden. They missed the point of it, and they even built on it, adding phrases that weren't actually there. They did this with the Sabbath, as we see in multiple encounters in the uh, Gospels, and they did this with this phrase, love your neighbor, well, that's from Leviticus, and hate your enemy. Wait a second, that's from the oral tradition, not from Scripture. From the mouth of men, not from the mouth of God. So this parable that is, we're about to look closer at here is an interpretation of the Old Testament law when it says to love your neighbor. This parable will answer a twofold question. Who is my neighbor and how am I to treat my neighbor? It's a good question. Not just then. I hope you see the relevance of it now. Because, again, if it's still a binding command that was originated in an Old Testament context, but Jesus affirms on multiple occasions to love your neighbor as yourself, and has said other parts in the New Testament, we should be able to answer, who is my neighbor? And what does it mean to be a neighbor? It's a good question. So, start in verse 30. Let's read verses 30 through 35. Let's do that. And it says this. Jesus took up the question and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, on his journey, came up to him. And when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Let's stop there for a moment. Going back to verse 30, uh, this note here about what Jesus sets the geography, if you will. He says, uh, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Okay, that's not a random uh, setting for this parable. The road between Jericho and Jerusalem is a lonely 17-mile stretch with, uh, with Jerusalem at 2,700 feet above sea level and Jericho at 820 feet below sea level. It's a drop of 3,520 feet. And this road was notorious for its robberies and became even more dangerous after Herod laid off 40,000 construction workers, leaving plenty of unemployed, and some of them turned to thievery and violent thievery at that. So five miles above Jericho was a particularly treacherous pass, and it was often called the Ascent of Blood. Now, there's so much more historically, culturally I can unpack there, but I'll kind of leave it at that. In the, Jesus is just setting up a geographical trail that people would have known and said, oh no, that location, we don't let our kids walk that route. You see what I'm saying? You don't travel that road alone, and you definitely don't travel that road at night. And then in verses 33 through 35, 33 through 35, uh, we see uh, here is kind of the meat of this particular parable. The priest walks by and he does, well, nothing. He keeps walking by. And we have to remember, Jesus is not anti-priest. He's, he's making a point to this uh, expert in the law, right? And so uh, here's the thing about the priests that we need to know. They actually, by their tradition, had an obligation 
to help someone that was bleeding out and that was dying to prevent them from dying. Obviously, that would be a good thing to do. And a priest had an obligation to do that if it was their neighbor. And we don't read neighbor <laughs> in terms of, oh, the person who lives uh, next door to me on the right. Like, no, no, that's not how it would read if the priest's neighbor literally, no. For an Israelite, many of them interpreted, and I would say wrongly, <laughs> neighbor to be restricted to a fellow Israelite. And so the priest, if he would know that this would be a fellow Israelite, would be required to do something to help this man. Now here's the thing. Jesus sets up this parable so that the man who beaten up is assumed, and I won't go into all the arguments why, but is assumed to be a fellow Israelite. And so this priest ends up passing by his very own neighbor. But I love that in the Greek text, it, it does something subtle but makes it clear that he goes on the other side. Basically, uh, the priest does not go in close enough proximity to identify if this man really is his neighbor, a fellow kinsman of Israel, or not. And so therefore he's not liable. Or so he thinks in his own conscience, oh, ignorance is bliss. I don't have to help this man. The Levite does the same thing. Well, who stops the Samaritan? Now let's talk quickly about that tension between Jews and Samaritans because they had become enemies. Samaritans were considered half-Jews, and many Jews even said that at the, in the age of the resurrection, there would be no Samaritans. They hated them. They're, they considered them subhuman. And, like, and it, all of this is because, I mean, quite a few reasons. So there's quite a few historical events that led to this tension of it. Uh, some would say Jews would consider them traitors when it came to some of the revolts. Um, they practiced, uh, I guess part of the irony too, is that they both worshipped the God of Israel and both considered the Hebrew Bible their scriptures. So it's just quite interesting. There's a lot you can unpack there. I would encourage you, if you do want more on that, go read some commentaries. Um, I think sometimes it's fun to withhold saying more, which I rarely do, I would say. I withhold saying more for the sake of, if you do want to dig more into the tension between Jews and Samaritans, plenty of commentaries will unpack that if you read this passage. So anyway, by using the Samaritan as the hero, Jesus disarmed the Jews. Because for the Jews... Samaritans were their enemies, and it was not a Jew helping a Samaritan, but a Samaritan helping a Jew who had been ignored by his fellow Jews. The Samaritan loved those, in this case, loved the one who hated him, risked his own life, spent his own money, about two days' wages of labor, and was never publicly rewarded or honored as far as we know. That's pretty surprising. All that he has done, he shows that acts of mercy are often costly, Really, really true. And now, let's keep reading. And there's more to say about the Samaritan in this parable, so that's not all I'm going to say, but a few more things to say here first, okay? So, uh, let's read verses 36 through 37. It says this. Jesus, then, after saying the parable, says this. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of these robbers? The one who showed mercy to him, the lawyer said. Then Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. Note that the lawyer, the expert in the law, couldn't even find it in himself to say Samaritan, but rather the one who showed mercy. You know, if I asked you who's the good guy in the story, you would say the Samaritan. If you ask this guy who he says the hero is, he says the one who showed mercy. He couldn't even bring himself. Kind of interesting. Now, before we get a little more specific again, let's just zoom out for a second. What's the big idea 
of this section of scripture, this parable and the dialogue between Jesus and this lawyer? A few answers can be given. Perhaps mercy is one of those fitting answers. See, the parable is a really great parallel for the beatitude found in Matthew 5, 7 when it said, uh, you know, happy are, blessed are, congratulations to the merciful because they will be shown mercy. Because both meanings of mercy are exemplified in this parable. You know, mercy is a really robust thing and it really boils down to two main meanings. There's uh, the example of compassion producing an action, uh, which in this parable, this, is, this view of mercy is very clear and unmistakable. However, the shock factor of this parable is the choice of the Samaritan being the one who provided the mercy to the unnamed, implicitly, Jewish man. See, scholars acknowledge that Jesus didn't have to say that the man who was harmed was a Jew. It was obvious based on the geography. Why does this matter? Because of the high tensions between Jews and Samaritans, sometimes becoming hostile and violent, there's an assumption that the Samaritan acted with compassion on a man who is naturally perceived as his enemy, at least from what culture had taught him. You see, it's sad to say, but uh, it would have been probably pretty regular for uh, Jews to be taught to hate Samaritans and Samaritans taught to be hate Jews. I think we can kind of think examples like that in our world today. And so you could even modernize this parable in many ways if you wanted to and think of those two types of people and going over and picking up the other one in the ditch. You see, uh, quite honestly, the Samaritan could have seen this Jew lying dead, half dead in the ditch and either gloried in what he saw or finished the job himself because this is what he was told is his enemy. But that's not what he did. There's two kinds of mercy going on here. In essence, the Samaritan had mercy by expressing forgiveness towards this perceived enemy, you know, forgiving whatever had been done in what he felt, I guess, would have been done wrong uh, between their clans, <laughs> if you will. And then before even going over to the man, he expressed that kind of forgiveness. But then also the other exemplified kind of mercy fear where we have compassion that produces an action. The implication is that we can only be this agents of this kind of mercy when we have been recipients of it first. And so here Jesus is calling us to feel and to act. Jesus is calling us to feel and to act, to put your compassion into action. You see, when, when the text talks about compassion, uh, what verse is that? In the ver- verse 33, he had compassion. Oh my gosh, that, that verb, splunknizomai, Spunknizomai is the word you would use to describe the churning in the stomach. It's, it's kind of like in modern times when we say, man, I saw that thing and it pulled on my heartstrings. Okay, yeah, the churning in the stomach, the pulling in the heartstrings. It's like when you see something and you can't look away. You can't forget it. You can't get it out of your head. You have to do something about it. You have to. Are you kidding me? Do you have a soul? Do you see what's going on there? Do you see that person? You have to do something. That is the kind of compassion that's talked about here. You see, mercy starts by drawing near when others are withdrawing. We draw near when others are withdrawing. The priest in this parable withdrew. He didn't even get close enough to identify if this man was, uh, if he was obligated to help this man. Mercy starts by drawing near when others withdraw. The Samaritan foresaw the hurting. And let's just be honest, guys, I'm preaching to myself here. It's easy to close our eyes to those who are hurting. So easy. I don't want to see it. Ignorance is bliss. I don't want to be responsible. The Samaritan then had compassion. We already talked about that. It's, it's almost like when you see, seeing someone in pain pains you. 
forces you into action, compels you. And then the Samaritan took action. His action was sacrificial and his action was above and beyond. All of this because the good Samaritan treated this man like he was a neighbor. And we are called, after all, and the Samaritan, even he would acknowledge this, to love our neighbors as ourselves. So let's go back to this uh, expert in the law's original question. Who is my neighbor? Well, what would be the answer to that? Anyone you come into contact with. Think about it this way. The world is one giant neighborhood, and all who we come into contact with are our neighbors. In essence, part of the shock and surprise of this parable is that Jesus wants us to know that we don't have enemies, we only have neighbors. Did you get that? I want to say that again. I think part of the realization is that Jesus wants us to know we don't have enemies, we only have neighbors, because if the globe is one giant neighborhood, then everyone, every human being is our neighbor. I think Augustine, uh, who lived back in the fourth century, said it eloquently and helps us you know, put some handles on this. He says this, All men are to be loved equally, but since you cannot do good to all, you are to pay special regard to those who, by the accidents of time or place or circumstance, are brought into closer connection with you. What's Augustine saying? He's basically saying, okay, yeah, we wish we can help everyone, <laughs> right? But since we can't, Let's have an obligation to help those who are in close proximity to us, whether by accident of time, those you run in along the way, or even intentionally, those who you do life with. Let's be merciful people to those who, even if the whole world is our neighborhood, those who we're neighboring with by proximity. And let me just say this, acts of mercy are hardly ever convenient. Acts of mercy are hardly ever convenient but they are more impactful when we inconvenience ourselves for the sake of others. So the question for us to really think about is this, who do I need to treat as my neighbor? Is there a stereotype of person I have made an enemy that I really need to become a neighbor to? Do I really, because I, I, guys, I think that the whole point of this parable that Jesus said, isn't that we then like, you know, become like vigilantes of pulling people off ditches all the time and looking for all that, like, yeah, let's do good whenever we can, however we can, within the resources that we can. Absolutely, amen. But Jesus had a specific point of what he was trying to do to help this expert in the law to see something, to see the heart condition of what was going on. Because this guy asked the question, who's my neighbor? And notice what Jesus does at the end there. He, he uh, asks him a different question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? You see, it's about being a neighbor to someone. It means that we start by seeing the whole globe, every person, regardless of race, regardless of uh, like economic status, regardless of all these things that usually divide us, seeing them as a neighbor. I think that Jesus really wanted to challenge us to break the paradigms that get us to see, to justify ourselves as to why we don't act with mercy toward others. What are the blind spots that I have what keeps me from acting mercifully in situations that the Holy Spirit is leading me to act with mercy? Because I think he will, you know, the, sh the short answer is that the Holy Spirit will guide us into times we need to act with compassion and mercy. There are plenty of people who need our genuine compassion, producing actions of mercy, of course. How can we see the whole world as one giant neighborhood and anyone in it as our neighbor? 
And with that, we'll see you next time on Adventures in Theology.